please turn in your Bibles to the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. We are looking at verses 1 through 7 as we prepare to uh, dive into a wonderful text, though some people call it controversial. Um, I don't think it is. Chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. We'll look at the first seven verses, and we're going to look at two words in verse 1. How's that? That way we're not overwhelmed. Okay? Now concerning the things which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immorality, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come back to, and come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of conscience, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Father, I ask now that you would teach. Father, it would be your words, it would be your spirit and the hearts of your people showing us what it is that you would have from us. Father, uh, I know our society, I know the age that we are in, Father, I know the hearts of men. I've seen them. And yet, Father, you lay this for us this day to strengthen. You lay this for us today, in some cases, to reprove. Father, you lay this today uh, to comfort, to counsel. And Father, may we, in the power of your Spirit, rejoice at what you have given. And Father, may we embrace it. And may it be that thing that masters us. Father, let us die to self. Let your word master us. Father, may great and mighty things come as we look upon your divine purpose and plan. To Christ and Christ alone. Amen. The book of Corinthians... Um, Actually, 1st and 2nd Corinthians are probably uh, two of the most practical texts that I've ever, you know, spent lengthy amounts of time in. And what is amazing about it is that 1st Corinthians sets the precedence for 2nd Corinthians. 1st uh, Corinthians is dealing with personal holiness. Now, I really need to emphasize this because we have a tendency to deal with the text of Scripture, and this thought comes running through. You ever seen the little signs that you program and it has a little message that goes across? We tend to have that go in our brain, okay? And we're, God is showing something to us of His divine purpose, His divine plan, and we have this little message that goes through there, I wish such and such would have heard this, or I wish such and such would have read this. You know what? If such and such needs to hear it or needs to read it, God will have it happen, when you read it, God says, you need it, all right? And we miss that. We always, we always have it in our mind that I'm studying this for the purpose of what? Well, in case I need to share it with somebody else. Um, that's ego. I study Scripture for me. And perhaps some chance God would give me the opportunity to share with someone else what he's given me. Okay, and in, until we get that firmly implanted in our heads, it's difficult. Second Corinthians deals with ministry. That's all that book is. How to minister. But if you haven't got First Corinthians right, you can't do Second Corinthians. Why? You're not holy. You're not a vessel of honor. You're not a vessel prepared for every good work. You're not ready. Okay, and you will get your uh, uh, lunch handed to you. Okay? 
So 1 Corinthians deals with personal holiness, and it's a very important book, especially in light of this fellowship. When I think about where we were, where we've come, where we're going, we have our theology now. We understand Matthew. We understand in light of Matthew, we are to go and make disciples of all nations. We understand that. And we're going to do it with Christ because he is with us always. We understand what it is to make disciples. We looked at 2 Timothy. We looked at it very in depth. Okay? In light of 2 Timothy, we understood in the book of Hebrews that we have an advocate who is seated at the right hand of God. You're going to look in this book and understand that you have an advocate who is inside of you who is there to help you also. But Hebrews set the stage on look at the royal majesty of Jesus Christ. Guard the five warnings that are in the book of Hebrews. Okay? Therefore, what should we do? If I'm looking at five warnings in the book of Hebrews and I'm looking at the majesty and glory of the risen king, then what should I do? Personal reflection. What is personal reflection? Personal holiness. How do I stack up? Well, we've already looked at six chapters of different things, lawsuits, egos, uh, personality cults. Uh, I'm not going to listen to this teacher because I prefer this teacher, I prefer this thing. And the schisms that come when our flesh rises up and thinks that it's got the, 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 the corner on the market for information. Okay? It's amazing about this book is that if you really look at it on a cursory glance, you would say there's not a lot of theology in this book. Okay, and theology is the study of God. Who is God? The truth of the matter is, there's enormous amounts of theology. And the theology is seen through the practical lifestyle that a Christian should live in holiness. Alright? Chapter 7 starts with this. Concerning the things which you wrote. Alright? Do you realize that up until this point, Paul is only sharing Paul? Paul's heart, Paul's passion, Paul's desire for the church. It is in light of Chloe's people. Chloe's people had shared that there's a problem in the church. And Paul took the first six chapters to deal with that. All right? Chapter 7, he begins with, I need to answer your questions. And chapter 7 is a question on marriage. On marriage. Um, this is a hot issue. Uh, in our society today, uh, but if you go to the Christian bookstore, you will find that there is a, what is that word, plethora of books written on marriage. And we have marriage ministries now, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, okay? Um, maybe more on this single topic than um, anything has ever been written in quote-unquote Christendom. Um, uh, and, and yet, uh, when I read Scripture, the Bible has a lot to say on marriage, uh, a tremendous amount. But it's amazing how we will get ourselves into certain circumstances, and with that circumstance, try to find out what it is God is saying in light of my circumstance. Okay, that's eisegetics. Okay, preconceived notion. Let me find a text that validates my preconceived notion. That is not exegetics. Exegetics is, thus saith the Lord. Okay? Um, in Matthew 19, I'll take you back a few years. Uh, the Lord taught much on marriage. And in Matthew 19, he said that a man, and this is paraphrased, a man and a woman were made for each other. God, God had a plan. And um, in that made for each other, they would be a union of one flesh. This union has nothing to do with children. Okay? I have seen people try to teach that they come together one flesh and it's proven by a child. Uh-uh. <laughs> that's, that's not what it means. Uh, and we've looked at it. Um, it. It is to become one uh, and that union of the union of the two was to be unbroken. Okay? Jesus was teaching that God hadn't changed anything. Okay, in, the, in the life of Christ, in that time of Christ, um, they had managed through eisegetics to uh, make um, divorce common and easier. It's similar to a Colorado law that we call no-fault divorce. I can just say, you know what? 
uh, irreconcilable differences. Uh, and that can be anything from uh, she's not as cute as I thought she was to uh, she burnt my bagel um, or toast or whatever. But we kind of in Colorado is basically a society that you see what a Christ would have been in. Okay? Jesus taught that God hadn't changed his attitude about marriage nor his attitude about divorce. The Lord also taught um, that uh, marriage was not only designed by God, but it was to be monogamous, it was to be unbroken, um, and it was only for this life, this temporal life. I'll give you the text. That's not what I'm dealing with right now, but I'll give you the text. Matthew 22, verse 30, Mark 12, verse 25, and Luke 20, verse 35. Okay, marriage is for this earth, it is not for heaven. Okay, and some of you are saying, yes. Okay, and you're not doing it where we can see you, but um, the hearts of men can be revealed. That you're thinking, well, I'll get rid of this bird before. Anyway, um, uh, what the Lord gave us was his view, God's view. This is God's view. Uh, it's what I call the theology of marriage. Okay, but let's be realistic. What about the practical applications of marriage? Okay? It's cool because God had a plan. He said, the practical applications I will give to my apostles. And they will write little letters that they will grow up and call epistles. And they will delineate the, the applications of the practical. That's where we're moving into. This epistle, this one, and many of the epistles give a lot of information about marriage. All right? Um, and I really suggest that we pay very close attention to Paul's because his ministry was primarily to who? And most of you today are Gentiles. Not only that, I believe you will realize that you are in a culture that is very much like the Roman Greek culture of the time of Corinthians. Sad to say. Okay? There is a lot to cover in Romans, or in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. A lot to cover. Um, and it's just not to learn what it says, but uh, my prayer has been uh, to do what it says. Um, how does it apply to my life. Okay, when I look in this room today, I have people who fit every context of 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, and I can almost guarantee you right now that some of you will not be happy with what you hear. Um, I'm not going to apologize. I'll let you and the Lord struggle with it and see what you come up with. Okay, so that's been my prayer. How does it apply to my life? When I studied this text, I just said, you know, first seven verses don't apply to me, so I'll move on. No, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> no. People will do that in seven, and I'll show you some other things that I'll deal with in the weeks to come, okay? To help us understand the context of this writing, because he says, concerning the things which you wrote, uh, we need to understand some of the problems that the Corinthians had. We've already seen that the Corinthians had an ego problem, a pride issue. You see that. But there was other things that had happened. The city of Corinth was founded by freed slaves. Okay? Uh, Roman, they had become, they had been a vanquished people, and they had served in the Roman legions, and in their freedom from the Roman soldiers, they were given property in Corinth. And so the foundation of the city of Corinth, the, the social structure of the city of Corinth, was set up by freed slaves. Okay? You have to really keep that in mind. Um, there are also some other things that were going on, and, and I'll deal with this in the course of the whole text of Romans, or 1 Corinthians, why do I keep this Romans 7? 1 Corinthians 7, because if I know the time in the society, what they were dealing with, and what they were living, uh, you, some of this becomes clear. Um, there was a text in here that, that is kind of weird, and it talks about uh, uh, virgins, uh, let them stay as virgins, and, and I kept thinking, what do you mean the... You know, so we both, he gives his own virgin daughter and marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. What the heck does that got to do? Um, 
and, and I think that you'll see this, okay? Um, he is an apostle to the Gentiles. He is in our society today. This letter probably hits more to our society where you live today than any time um, in the past, okay? Uh, which is a problem, all right? The church in Corinth had a huge problem, okay? Actually, they have four questions that they ask of the Apostle Paul. I believe that in chapter 16, verse 17, there's a list of three gentlemen, I believe it's gentlemen, that um, brought a letter to the Apostle Paul, and it was dealing with these four questions, okay? And Paul deals with these questions um, in chapter 7, through chapter 11, okay? Then in 12 through 16, he goes back to dealing with what Paul's heart is, all right? But there are four questions, all right? I shared with you the first six chapters is a direct response to what he's heard from Chloe's people on this division, this backbiting, uh, this uh, raising up of legalistic and my spirituality is higher than yours. Um, you know, I would rather be under Paul's teaching. I'd rather be under uh, Apollos' teaching. I prefer the Jewish teaching, but I'm just a servant of Jesus Christ and I worship Christ my way. All that kind of stuff that you it can even hear it today. But in here between verses or chapter 7 through chapter 11, he deals with four questions. First question he's going to deal with, and I'll go back over these, is first question is on marriage. Okay? Marriage in the church in Corinth was a, a, a problem. The second question is things offered to idols. What about things offered to idols? If you were in Corinth at the writing of this letter, if you went to get fresh meat, okay, let's say uh, you got a, a, a Christmas bonus. Well, Christmas wasn't celebrated. Let's say you got a holiday bonus of some type and you decided you was going to go get you some T-bone steaks or a leg of lamb or something like that. Do you know where you had to go get it? At the temple. The temple of Aphrodite's or at the temple of uh, Jupiter or temple of, uh, you know, all them other people. You had to literally go into the temple, okay, and you bought what was left of a, a bull, a, a lamb or chicken, whatever it was you are feeling like you were going to eat, that had half of it had been offered to an idol, to, to some strange god, okay, to what I call a little deity, okay. Uh, and uh, um, so they, they were having a problem with that. You know, I, I've got a little Christmas bonus thing here, and I'd like to have steak for the family tonight. Where do I go get steak? Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, they didn't have refrigeration. The other question, question number three, the women in the church. Interesting text, and I think we'll find it fascinating. And then there was also the question on the Lord's table, uh, the remembrance of, of the new covenant. Okay, so they had four concerns of the, the saints in Corinth, and they wanted their founder to help them with this, okay? I will tell you that the four questions that he deals with are the same four questions that are struggling in the body of Christ today, and the reason that I say that is, is that the same, uh, the same basic problem, okay, that exists in the church in Corinth, is the same basic problem that underlies the church in America today, the church in Castle Rock, and in some cases, I believe, some of you in this body. Okay, here's what it is. We have a problem uh, with the adjustment of life to the church community. Okay, here's my life. Here's how I've lived. This is what I've done. In some of your cases, you've been raised in the church many, many years. But ask yourself, was it good, solid, deep theological teaching? Or was it basically evangelical? You know, evangelistic, I mean. You know, you know, get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved. Okay, how much growth will you have in a get saved church? Okay, and, and it, I, listen, I'm not here. If I make eye contact with you, I'm not referring to you and I'm thinking that you're wrong or you're, you know, your Sunday school teacher when you was in eight years old was wrong or anything. That's not what I'm saying. But what we do have, you think about it, how much time do you spend in, the, in, in your workplace? A week, okay, a week, okay? Ask yourself a question. When I am out in that place, does it have an influence on me? 
Does it have an influence on your ideology? Your attitude? Your actions? Your responses that you have in light of world events or social events? Uh, maybe your actions to your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend? Um, it affects you in every way. The question is, is it man's wisdom or God's wisdom? I mean, one of the, the greatest dangers that I see in the church today is not false teaching. The greatest danger I see in the church today is man wisdom taking control of God's church. Because I know what the outcome of that is. All right? This church is a Greek society that is under Roman authority. All right? That's the status of this community. Okay, um, if you read historians, you will find out that Rome defeated Greece, the Greeks militarily, but the Greeks defeated Rome morally. All right, and uh, I won't go into details on that. But um, and what is amazing is is that when Rome conquered a company, a country, uh, uh, an area. They literally would allow them to self-govern themselves as long as they paid heed to Rome, paid taxes to Rome, and obeyed basically a blanket Roman law. Okay, basically, you can't murder anybody, you can't steal from anything. It was a very loose moral standard that Rome set up. In light of that, under our authority, we'll give you roads, we'll give you water, we're going to give you protection, and we'll give you a little ju uh, judicial system that, you know, if you, if you got somebody and you need to give them, you know, send them to prison or some kind of punishment, uh, even to the point of uh, the death penalty, uh, we'll adhere to that. As long as you do that, we'll all get along, okay? When you get out of that, uh, we're going to come down with the Roman legions, and we will make it so... Uh, you don't have to worry about it anymore, okay? This little peninsula off of the Greek peninsula, there's a, there was an isthmus. An isthmus is a very narrow piece of land, and it was between Athens and Corinth, right? And that's where Corinth really made their money is instead of sailing all the way around the Greek peninsula, they could literally haul boats, ships, up out of one sea and dump them into the Mediterranean Sea. And that's how they did it. I think it's the Aegean Sea, and you just dump, you'd haul them across the ground, they're loading everything, you'd haul them across, and you'd dump them back in there, and they wouldn't have to sell all the way around where you'd get a, an influx of the, the currents of the ocean, and it was kind of treacherous. And that's how Corinth made a lot of, lot of money moving boats. And, of course, you, you paid a, 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 a tariff to do that. Okay? In Roman law, okay, as I, as I looked at this, um, there was at least four different ways you could get married. But what I found in Roman law, if you just wanted to jump up one morning and say, me and this, whatever this person is, are married, the Romans said, fine. You paying your taxes? No problem. But there were four that were kind of more recognized, and yet as I read through Roman law... Um, <laughs> Pretty much reality, any system that you wanted to say that, you know, we're married, um, fine, no problem, okay? Understanding that Corinth, okay, was set up by slaves uh, and, and that the society that existed in the Roman Empire were hundreds of thousands of slaves, okay? Vanquished people, if they, were, if they refused to submit and wanted to continue to be rebellious, Roman, would, Roman legions would come in, uh, uh, obliterate the area, and anyone who survived became a slave. Okay? Um, slaves were considered uh, not human. Okay? They were basically a tool. They had absolutely no right as a citizen. Okay? Even you will find that in the ruins of Corinth today that this was settled by slaves, yet they owned slaves. Okay, so when a, um, when a slave, you know, two slaves were sl slaving for somebody and they fall in love, they would go to their owner and say, we're in love and, and we want to, to be married. Um, this is contubernium in the Latin. Excuse my Latin, it's not that good. Okay, and it literally means tent companions. Okay. 
Uh, and the owner would say, you know, I, maybe I've got this big, tall, strapping man, and I've kind of got this cute little woman slave here. Maybe if I get the two together, I'll get a cute-looking, strong, strapping something. All right, so yeah, go ahead. So the, the owner would say that you two can live together. If you want to call it married, you're married. And the owner uh, agreed to it. Now then, if somewhere during your tent companionship, the owner got ticked off at you, and he sold you or your wife, he could care less. Or he may get really mad at both of them and say, you, you don't have a, a cute baby or strong baby. And he says, you guys are duds, I'm selling both of you. And he sells one to a Spanish man and another one to an Asian man. Um, he's not going to lose any sleep over it. Okay? He had that right. Why? Because the slave was a tool. Now, figure this out. If there's hundreds of thousands of slaves in the Roman Empire, where is the church ministry? Who, think about it today, who do we have the greatest impact on? Who are those who see the need for Christ the first? Those in the greatest need, right? And if I dig a hole deep enough, I'm, you know, only Christ can get me out of the thing, right? Where would a slave be in that what would you do if you had a Sunday, they worshipped every day, anytime they could get together. What would you do if all of a sudden you had a whole group of, uh, 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 of church members who were tent companions? Come on now, what would you do? What would you do if the owner took about half your congregation and sold them? That's what the church in Corinth is dealing with. It gets weirder than that. Um, I was at, uh, to say there's a marital mess is an understatement. Okay, at the Shepherds Conference, they have a time of, of question and answers uh, for the elders of Grace Community Church, um, a, a very huge church, uh, and it's fascinating because you get men and different pastors around the world, okay? Um, <clears throat> they were asking about divorce uh, and elders and Grace Community, of course, they've been 35 years under the teaching of Dr. MacArthur and all that has happened there. Uh, if one of their elders at Grace Community has a, a son or a daughter who's having marital problems, that elder is asked to step down, okay, and to assist uh, the, the child uh, with the marital problems. Okay, the question came up from a Brazilian pastor, and I found this fascinating. Um, the question came up on divorce. Can an elder be divorced? And they said, biblically, an elder can be divorced, depending on the circumstances that was there. And he went through the long dissertation. I'm not going to get into that. But we do not appoint divorced men as elders. And the reason is uh, we have enough men to pull from. We have a strong enough community. And not only that, uh, we want to set a standard because we do tend to be a lightning rod. And I watched this Brazilian man, his head go down like that. And they said, why? He says, there's no one in my church who isn't divorced. Not only that, I was married five times before I got saved. And I'm the pastor. And of course, they cleaned it up and said, let us explain to you that we're not saying that this is the standard of God's word. This is the standard that we have set at Grace Community Church. I found that interesting because I've also had opportunity to minister uh, alongside uh, brothers from Africa. Africa has the largest spreading of AIDS anywhere in the world. You know why? It's not homosexuality. If, if you are an African, okay, and you're married, okay, and let's say, I'll use it from the man's perspective. Let's say I'm a, a man and I'm married, and for some reason I die, and my wife doesn't have any kids, it is my brother's responsibility to make her have kids. Okay? You know what's weirder than that? What if I died of AIDS? 
Guess what? Guess who else has AIDS? My wife. Guess who else now has AIDS? My brother. If I don't have a brother, then the elders of my village, it is their responsibility that my wife has children. Okay? Now then, how would you like to pastor that community? Okay? Yahoo! <laughs> We're having fun now, huh? Okay? So what do you do? I mean, let's, let's say you're the, the, the fourth pastor in the church in Corinth. You've got a whole bunch of tent companions, and all you can say is what? Cut it out? It's not right? What? Did Paul go through and try to break everything up in their society? Now, you know what is amazing about Paul and the writers of the New Testament? They did the same thing. They never dealt with what you would classify as the issue. They dealt with what is the true issue. Paul taught on the sanctity, the sacredness of marriage. Okay? Whatever they had, whatever the legal basis of the union they had together, whether if it's a tent companion, he simply says, stay together pure, pure. Prove yourselves to one another. Stay true to one another. And it isn't the ceremony. It isn't this, well, I made a vow or that. No, he's saying, do you understand the sacredness of marriage? And that's what he taught. Love one another. Make everything of that marriage that God designed it to be. That's all you slaves have a choice to do. Why? And if your owner sells you, it isn't out of God's sight. Honor him with what he's given you at this time. There was another one called the uses type of marriage. Uh, and basically, uh, women and men could live together for a year, and at the end of the year, they would be identified as husband and wife. Okay? So you got tent companions and what you and I know as common law. Okay? Um, so the church would have to deal with those who were common law married. You know, when I was going through this, I, I, the thing that kept coming back into my head was what King Solomon said. There isn't anything new under the sun. <laughs> okay? We just have different names, but I mean, it's basically the same. Okay? Um, there was no way to um, legally identify their marriage. I mean, you could have a whole church full of people, and what marriage law would you lay upon them? Again, the New Testament doesn't say what is the church supposed to do other than the sanctity of marriage that exists and make your marriage, this union, glorify God. Here's the one that I really rejoice in because this is the one that I emailed to my daughter. Cometo Emmanuel. Cometo Emmanuel. I like this one. Marriage by sale. The father sells his daughter to a husband. Make me an offer. <laughs> I, well, I think it's great. The guy has the right price. You can have the daughter. You will see this in chapter 7, verse 38. Well, right. I think that's a wonderful idea. There was a young lady who was with us on our trip for at Israel. Uh, had just graduated and is preparing to go into the mission fields to with Wycliffe, and uh, I run into this, uh, uh, you got to love the Palestinians, but um, this Palestinian come up to me, and he says, you know her? And I said, yeah, I know her. And he says, I'll give you 700 camels for her. And I said, sold. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, how could you do that? I says, listen, they're getting five shekels for a picture of a camel. They're getting 10 shekels to ride the camel. I'm getting 700 camels. <laughs> Okay, um, it's a financial arrangement. I mean, depending on the girl, um, you could get some camels to maybe a lame chicken. I don't know. Uh, I mean, depending where the young lady was, you may just anything. <laughs> Give me a rock. Um, 
Okay, so, but it was a financial. And then the third one, kind of far out to you, is the noble marriage. This is an interesting marriage, con, confaratio, uh, and it literally means coming together. This was what they called the classy marriage. This was reserved for Roman citizens who came together. And it's a very interesting uh, thing that came together here, and I'll, I'll just share with you how it came, how, how this comes together, all right, and, and see if this sounds like deja vu. Um, two families would draw together with the, the family of, of the man and the family of the woman, and the woman would pick, pick a woman that she believed is closest to her, and she would have her stand with her. The man would pick a man who is closest to her, to him, and he would stand with him. They would come together, and they would uh, join right hands, and in doing so, they would say some vows together, promises to one another, and then when they were finished, they would offer prayers. The prayers were usually offered to Jupiter and Juno. There was a great massing of flowers, and the, the woman would carry this great big bunch of flowers to show how wonderful this was. She always would wear this veil, and at the conclusion of the prayers and at the conclusion of the vows and the prayers, the veil would be lifted, and the guy would kiss her. They found through uh, dissection and their study of the human anatomy that in this ring, third ring, or third finger of the left hand, that there's a nerve in the center of that finger that goes straight to the heart. So they said, hey, that's kind of cool. We can put a ring around that finger, and it will tie that man and that woman straight to the hearts to one another. All right? When they would do all of this together, uh, they would go to another place, and they would have some cake. Okay? And that was the classy the high-honored wedding. Cool, huh? Sound familiar? Did you know that our wedding services is not based on New Testament nor Old Testament? You know what it's based on? Roman paganism. Roman Catholic Church picked it up and the Reformation came. What did the Reformers do? They kept it. They kept it. I've seen this thing on American weddings and how much they were costing. You know, the Hebrew weddings used to last seven days, and I'm thinking they're cheaper. I've seen some of the weddings. They said the average wedding is $45,000 in America. $45,000? I mean, you can buy a car. <laughs> Can't you for $45,000? Maybe a little car. $45,000 average wedding in America. Um... Our marriage ceremony that you and I know basically come from the Roman uh, culture, okay? Uh, so, but I wanted to share that with you because there's four different ways that people could be married or sort of married, living together, and these people would be coming to the church in Corinth, okay? Would you say that this is, causes problems? Yeah. Um, what are you going to do? Well, let's see. We can do something new for the Roman Empire. Uh, maybe we can impose new laws and regulations for the Roman Empire. What do you think? Right. Okay. I don't think that's going to work. And you know what? What I found is that the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers, none of them do. They don't say, well, you need to make a vow. You need to have a ceremony. You need to have to do this. You need to do that. You know, remember how the Hebrews do it? Now, you remember the Old Testament? Uh, you know, and I thought about the Old Testament when you know how they did it? They would take an animal and they would cut it in half, length to length, okay? And then let all the blood, and then the bride and the groom would walk through that, and it was a blood covenant. And I'm thinking, that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> okay? Uh, of course, the, the, the expensive white dress is going to be a bummer. Uh, but, uh, you know, and you could do that once, and of course then you'd have PETA protesting, and, and you'd have all the other things, but it was a blood covenant, and they said, until death do you part, and that's when the covenant was enforced, and guess what? They meant it. Uh, anyway, I'm not sure that I can make that fly, okay? Um, the New Testament writers simply taught the sanctity, the sacredness of marriage. Whatever way you happened to get into the thing was not the issue. 
for the New Testament writers. Just make the most uh, of where you're at now and what you have now. Um, and that would be some of the problems, and you'll see them in the, this text. But you also add to it uh, a more moral character of marriage was non-existent. And what do I mean by that? Um, divorce, to say it was rampant, is bizarre. Okay, It was common to have over 20 exes. Okay? There are some recorded between 27 and 38 divorces. Okay? It was common for Roman men to count their years by the number of ex-wives they had. Okay? See, that was the Roman culture. Okay? So um, to have multiple divorce was normal. What do you do with a man who's been divorced 22 times and he comes to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Okay? Not only that, there was rampant homosexuality. Um, it tended to be more of a bisexual thing. The other thing, Roman hierarchy believed that wives were for the house and concubines were for pleasure. What do you do if you have a concubine come into your church and comes to saving grace of Jesus Christ? What do you do with a woman who is for the house and her husband is a non-believer? So to say that the marriage, the picture of marriage was confusing uh, would be an understatement. Um, who's married, who's not, who's divorced, who's a concubine, uh, there's a whole bunch of problems. Uh, let me give you another problem. Um, some suggested that in light of this confusion, tent relations, the selling of, of your children, uh, and uh, multiple divorce, that it was better, just don't get married. Then what happens normally is that is elevated, celibacy or singleness, becomes elevated to a spiritually elite person. You have denied yourself, your flesh. Therefore, you are devoted to God. Okay? Um, lay aside all of the things of this world and devoted to Jesus Christ. Great view, huh? And this was a strong, strong belief in the Corinth. That singleness was the highest form uh, of the Christian life. Um, to never get married, to ha not have any sexual relations at all. And, and, and if you really look at what I just gave you, part of that had a bit of wisdom to it, but pride would take over on something like that, and you could say, look at me. Uh, we still see this today. Okay, uh, do you remember the Davidians? The Branch Davidians, they hung out just outside of Baylor University. Uh, he liked to teach don't marry because it's more spiritual. Uh, not only that, he liked everybody else's wife. Um, but um, the Roman Catholics believe this. Um, if you never got married and you had no sexual relations and you were this devoted spiritual person, um, that not wanting to marry would give way to condemning people who are married. Why? You could be more spiritual if you weren't married. Um, some would, who were married would leave their partners in order to be celibate because they wanted to be more spiritual. Um, not only that, you would run into a phenomenon. People married to unbelievers and you need to get out of this. I have dealt with this in the past where a, a believer was trying their best to cause problems in the marriage so that he would leave her so that she could be free of the unbeliever. Okay? Uh, they literally would have a belief that if I had relations with my unbelieving husband, then I have some way defiled myself because... I'm saved, he's not, or vice versa. Um, 
And yet the Jews, there would have been a Jewish community here, thought it was a sin not to marry. You didn't have a wife, what's wrong with you? You're disobeying God. And I'll deal with that in a minute. Okay? So then, that I want you to see before I jump into seven. Why? I have two words I want to deal with. All right? Concerning that which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. There's a dandy, huh? I remember years and years and years ago, and I thought about this. I was with a church, and I can't remember who the church was. It was back when I was a kid back in Ohio. And we went on a hay, hay, uh, hay wagon ride. And the girls rode in one wagon, and the boys rode in the other wagon. And I thought, well, we, who signed me up for this? Um, you know, I kissed my first girl in kindergarten, and it went downhill from there. But, um, oh, i just kidding, honey. But uh, uh, it, I, I thought, what is the purpose of this? And, and I remember this woman, and I distinctly remember a woman. I don't remember who it was. I don't remember who I was with, said that you're not to touch a woman. And I remember him quoting some Bible verse, and uh, in my study, I found that woman's Bible verse. If this verse is true, then this whole mess stopped with Adam and Eve. Why? God said, don't touch a woman. I don't think it ended there, do you? Nah. All right. All right, let's look at two words here. I'm going to start with the hard one. Touch. Don't touch a woman. What in the world does that mean? Two words in the Greek to touch that are translated touch. Theogamayo, okay, and hapetume. Theogamayo and hapetume. This word happens to be hapetume, it's middle voice, but it is a verb with an active meaning. So I have a verb with an active meaning middle voice. Aren't you happy you know that information? It makes it a deponent verb. Happy yet? Thrilled just out of your mind. What a deponent verb means, it says apply to oneself. Okay? Apply to oneself. If I take the root of this in the active voice meaning, it literally has to do with this, to, to a joint to set fire to. That's a literal translation. If, if you're going to start a fire, you have to have a pile of fuel and you take another piece of burning something and you stick it in there and that's what uh, the word means to set it on fire and I said well that says do not set the woman on fire well cool <laughs> that sure clears up a lot doesn't it alright but then it applies it to myself so it says that when I'm smoking uh, Cuban cigars or whatever I'm smoking I keep it away from her hair because <laughs> you know because you know this woman and poof and up she went um, no, that's not what it means. Okay? It literally has in mind, happy to me, to handling of something. Okay? That goes beyond touching. Alright? Uh, handling an object or a person to exert a modifying influence on it. I want to change something. Okay? Let me give you some for instances. Matthew chapter 8, verse 3. Hapetume is used. The Lord touched the leper in order to have an influence on him. He healed him of his leprosy. It was Romans 8, 3. Pay attention, Matt. Okay, 8, 3. All right, Matthew 8, 3. It's all in Matthew. Matthew's chapter 8 and 9 is the only references I'm going to give you today. Well, that's not true. All right, Matthew 8, 15. It says that the Lord touched Peter's mother-in-law's hand to heal her. Peter hated him to the day. No, just kidding. But he, she was ill and he did what? To do what? To influence her to heal her. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, okay, there was a woman with the issue of blood. Okay, what did she do? She Touched the hem of his robe. What for? To get influence. To change it. To change it. Alright. In Matthew 9, 29. Christ touched the eyes of the two blind men. And gave them sight. Okay. It is touching for the purpose of influencing. 
Okay. Now let me tell you something. This is more than than this because I want to. I'm going to expand this. This is way more than it. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter five, twenty-seven through thirty-two, it talks about. You have heard it said, if you have adultery, da da da, and all the rest of it. He says, if you look at a woman. You have committed adultery and it's better to stick your eye or poke your eye out, cut your hand off. That's the text that he's dealing with. All right. What is he saying there? That is, it's not, if I just go, look, okay. Because the Pharisees would go around blindfolded, put a thing on there. And if women come around, they would run into things. And, and it was not uncommon because they was afraid that if I looked at a woman, that I would, you know, I have sinned. Okay. There is a difference between looking at a woman and looking at a woman. Okay, in the mood that I am trying to sway influence. All right, and it, what happens? What, listen, David was on a roof and he looked down and he saw an ankle. Now let's be realistic. An ankle? Okay, but what happened? What happened to the look? It became this longing, this lusting, and it stirs passion. When that passion takes over, what happens? That look just then did what to my influence? Okay. How many times? See, if I have a woman, let's say, is grieving for the loss of a loved one or, or, or something to this effect, am I supposed to not touch her? Man, that's harsh. That's not what's being said here. Am I touching her to sway her to passion? Oh, now you've got a problem, Houston. Okay. Let me show you how it's used in the Old Testament. Okay. Because... The Matthew text, verses chapter 5, arouses a man uh, to a passion for that woman, and that woman is not his wife. There are times I like to, I, I'm going to try to say this and hope I don't get in trouble, um, that I look at my wife with passion. I'm supposed to. If I don't, that's going to cause me greater heartache than if I do. Isn't it? Some of you guys are saying, I ain't saying nothing. <laughs> the guys are all going like this. And the women are going, where is he going with that one? And I'm just going to stop right there. I ain't going nowhere. All right? Because I'm not going to walk on that one. All right? But there is a time. I'll be honest with you. I married my wife because she's fun to look at. Partially. Okay? There are some other things. Come on, people. I'm not that shallow. You guys are all looking at me and saying, boy, did she get stuck there with it, did <laughs> I knew I was going to get in trouble with that one. I'm going to go to Genesis 20. Abraham's getting into trouble. Abraham was a little bit nervous about... Uh, Abraham had journeyed toward the land of the Negev. I've been there. And he settled in Kadesh and Shur and swords into uh, Gerar. Okay? Um, <clears throat> this king saw his wife. And evidently, Sarah was a, a looker. Uh, Abimelech uh, decided that, you know, I'm, I'm into Sarah. And uh, so uh, Abraham, in his infinite wisdom, decided that you tell him that we're brothers and sisters, okay? Uh, that way they won't kill me. <laughs> Great idea. What is he getting ready to do? Allow his wife to commit adultery. Okay, that's, that's the biblical understanding there. In chapter, in chapter 20, verse 6, God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay, now let's be realistic. What is he talking about there? Touching in a way to change or influence her, huh? <laughs> that would be kind of a way to describe that. What is the, the sexual relations? Okay. Um, a wonderful book phenomenal book and I've actually almost I'm thinking that I want to teach this because it's, it's just so cool the book of Ruth the book of Ruth I love this book because uh, you talk about the providence of, of God this is a Moabite woman just uh, things just ain't going right for her uh, Boaz grabs a hold of Ruth she's a widow and uh, <clears throat> has her working and in verse 9 of chapter 2 he says let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. And when you are thirsty, you go for the water jars and drink with the, from what the servants have drawn. 
Okay, what is the implications there? Sex. Okay, why this is a Moabite woman. She's in the, the nation of Israel now. Uh, and, and what is going on? And then another verse uh, out of Proverbs 6, verse 29. It says this, So is the one who goes into his neighbor's house, neighbor's wife, whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Does that mean you don't go over and shake her hand? Is that what he's saying? So you see where this word has to do with the sexual intimacy or something pushing to a sexual intimacy for influencing the person. So to touch somebody is not a sin. Okay, but I, I, we need to continue to look at this because he's saying is that it's not good to have this relationship simply in light of what he's saying. All right, if you read this text, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Note the term. It doesn't say wife. So he's saying if it's, if it's not your wife, then you would be single. So what does he say here? It is kala. K-A-L-A. Kala. All right? It is beneficial. It is profitable. It is good to be single. That's what he's saying. Why? He's going to hit him right in the straight up in the face. Now look, I want you to show you something. He's not contrasting here. He's not saying it's better to be single than to be married. He's not saying that. He's just saying that it is beneficial, it is productive, it isn't a second class citizen to be single. It's not evil to be single. It's not bad to be single. He's not saying that it is the only good is to be single. He's saying if you are single, there's nothing wrong with it. Not only that, it's good. Don't touch a woman. Why? Don't get into that position. Okay? We see that today. It's huge today. Our whole society pushes toward it. Right. You get at a certain age, a certain level. See, so you get your education. Sometimes you don't get your education. You're at a certain age. you got this happening. And now it's time to what? Marry. Why aren't you married? I mean, you know, all the people in the world, you can't find somebody to marry? What's the matter with you? Right? I'm seeing it. Our society says what? Apostle Paul says, not all being single. Not only that, it's good. It's beneficial. It's beneficial. Um, we run into this one. All my friends are married. How do I associate with all these people who are married and I'm single? Perhaps you ought to hang around with the married people and realize how lucky you are to be single. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I don't know. But do, I, do you see what I'm saying? I see some married people that say, oh boy, <laughs> I hope you're not marketing that. Uh, but do you see what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with being single. We believe that you have to have a spouse. Why? I'll deal with the text. Okay? All my friends are, um, you know. Eh, Understand that the position you are in society today is profitable. It is beneficial. It is good. There's nothing wrong with it. Okay? He's already dealt with immorality. Remember in chapter 6, 15 through 18, that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Who would join the Lord with a harlot? All right, he's, not he's basically saying, you know what, the issue here of Touching the woman, uh, the, the uh, uh, sex with the woman is dealing with it in the relationship of marriage. You don't have to be married to be whole. Uh, the Jews, as I said, taught that if you didn't have a wife, you're a sinner. The Talmud teaches, and this is a quote, a man who does not have a wife and a child has slain his prosperity and has, uh, what does it say here? has blasted the image of God in the world. Ew, unquote. Blasted. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it's a good thing. Okay? The Jews believe there's seven kinds of people could not get into heaven. Number one on the list who cannot get into heaven, a Jew with no wife. 
Okay, number two on the list, a wife with no children. Hmm. Why? The Jews believe that God said, be fruitful and multiply, and if you don't do that, you're do, d disobedient to the commandments of God. Okay? So no doubt in the Corinthian church, you've got the Jews over here saying, you've got to be married, you've got to be married, you've got to be married, you got to be married. If you're not married, gee, many crickets, you can't even get into heaven. You don't even get qualified for heaven. And we know what Jesus did, and we understand all that, but how can you be that disobedient? He said, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. But you also have the Gentiles. Don't marry, man. It is a pain in the neck. I mean, I was living with this woman. We loved each other. They sold us. Here I am. And there's just heartache after heartache after heartache. I shared with uh, a few in the, in, in, in the past. Uh, my biggest heartache, my biggest fear uh, in my ministry are my children. Everybody says they want children. You know, because to get married, you've got to have children. My biggest concern is my children. Why? I know where my heart is for my king. I know where I'm vulnerable. Where? My children. What happens if my children stumble into sin? What if what happens if my children shame my God? How will I take that? I'm not worried about what God's going to do. God's got it all figured out. But I know how it would absolutely crush me. Okay? So why would I want children? If all I'm doing is adding to a vulnerable spot. Now listen, I've got kids. I'm not going to back up and say, can we get rid of these? <laughs> okay? I understand that. What? That's why I wear this ring. I have two kids that are out of sight. This ring makes sure they're not out of mind. Okay, why? I pray for my two that are in college daily. Anytime I reach over and I can touch that ring, I go to the king on behalf of those kids. Why? I know their gene pool. Okay? They need much prayer. Okay? Not from her side, my side. Okay? So Paul starts this question out. We have these questions concerning some things. The first one is marriage, and he goes, bam, you can be single. And it is good. It is good. Okay? Well, that sounds great to you. I'm thinking about some of you in our fellowship. But what about the Old Testament? You know, it says... It is not good for man to be alone. That's what it says. Go with me to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Verse 6. God makes a home for the lonely. It literally means um, single person. It may say solitude, solidarity. You know that? God sets the solitary in families. You know that? I see this all over the place. God fulfills the needs for friends. God fulfills the needs for family. And God fulfills the needs for the relationship that every single human being has to have. You know what is really cool about it? He looked at Adam and says, you need a helpmate. Did you know that if you are single this day, God provides help? All over the place. And yet we run around thinking, well, I need to be married or I need to be... De well, you're telling me that what God has given you as family and friends and relationships isn't good enough? I love that. I'd like to tell you that uh, I found that on my own, but I found it through a book called Treasury Scripture Knowledge. But it's good to be single. If you are single today, it's good. It's not bad. You're not second class. You're not in a position, well, I can't be used. No, no, no. It's not wrong. Okay? You know what? In light of Psalm 68, it isn't even something to concern yourself over. And that's what the Apostle Paul steps out right in chapter 7 and says. 
Okay? Singleness is good. Okay? But singleness is also tempting. Singleness is also wrong for the married. And singleness is a gift. And we'll deal with those in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, I give you the praise for the amazing things you do. Father, the fact that you are so concerned about us that even those who are single have family and friends who surround them. Father, you give them even help, help mates, uh, men and women in their lives that can assist them to, to be accountable, to help them minister, to, Father, to let them seek the things above, to let them walk in your holiness and your protection. Father, what an awesome God you serve. Father, the things you've shown me in your study, in the study of Scripture and what you've laid on my heart is amazing. Father, you know the hairs of our head. You know the desires of our heart. Father, I ask now that we who are gathered here, we who are married, we who are single, that, Father, we bow before you and know that every fulfillment for life is in Christ and Christ alone. Father, those that you've brought into my life to keep me from being alone, I praise you for them. Father, I praise you for my bride. But Lord, I also praise you for the multitude of friends and family that you have brought in, that this group of people is my family. Father, for those who are single this day, I lift them up to you. And Father, they do not be concerned about where they are in the marriage picture. But Father, they understand the blessedness that you have given them and the position they are at this time. And that, Lord, they cherish that and they praise you for that. And that, Father, they look to the help and the family and the relationship that you have poured on them graciously. Father, may we understand that everything is about your intent. Father, let us be fervent in seeking your intent. And Father, let us give you the praise and joy and the adoration do you who know when the sparrows fall. Yet, Father, we are more important. Father, let us rejoice in that. Give you the praise, glory. In Christ's name, amen.